Hello and welcome to Nightlight. There are so many issues on so many people's minds from so many different directions. And I understand that. One of the difficulties of the times we're living in is the overflow of information mixed with false information or disinformation. But even if you took away the element of disinformation, you would still have to deal with the fact that there is too much information to monitor, to process, to digest. When people attempt to say that we're in a time that it reminds them of, and then they, they mention some other era, whether it's the gas uh, shortage of the 70s or the economic melee of, of the 70s or uh, some other period in our history, uh, it, it's, it's like comparing a cartoon to a full motion picture. There's no uh, event in the, in the last decades of our lifetimes that can compare to where we are now. I don't think any of you who listen to me need that stated. I mean, it's an insult to your intelligence. And yet, I had a conversation even this morning with a man I, I really respect in many areas of life. I respect him. But there's a there's a fear in him it shows up in his eyes that if he ever stops talking uh, long enough for his common sense to kick in, it'll scare him to death. So he just keeps talking about how this or that or the other thing is no different than it was 40 or 50 years ago, and it's just another version of it. Whether it's the economy or the ecology or the uh, disintegration in culture or the international uh, dangers of uh, nuclear conflict on a, a number of levels, or even Islam, he seems to have convinced himself that Everything is just like it's always been. He takes refuge in a misuse of the book of Ecclesiastes, which says there's no new thing under the sun. Certainly in a certain context, Ecclesiastes is true. There's no new thing under the sun. But that that easily gets manipulated into uh, consciously or unconsciously a fulfillment of the warning of Peter in Second Peter when he says, look, in the last days, scoffers will come walking after their own lusts and saying, okay, so where is the promise of his so-called coming? For since our forefathers went to their graves, all things remain as they've always been. So Peter points out the fact that one of the signs of the close of the age will be an ever-increasing tendency to whistle in the dark by saying everything is just like it's always been. There's no new thing under the sun. Well, everything's not like it's always been. Big revelation there, huh? Well, let me tell you what, what is new that has never been uh, before. And that is that there has not yet been a fulfillment of God's promise of the latter rain, which precedes the harvest. 
And I want to spend our time together today discussing what that means. The former rain and then the latter rain. Now, several years ago in a conference I was attending, not leading but participating in, one of the songs we sang in that uh, worship time in that conference was Days of Elijah, which many of you know. But in case you don't know it, the second verse says, These are the days of Ezekiel, the dry bones becoming as flesh. And these are the days of your servant David, restoring uh, the temple of praise. Then the next verse says, And these are the days of the harvest. The fields are as white in your world. I had sung that song as a congregational song. I'd led it many times. I knew the verses backward and forward. But this particular day, I was aware of not feeling much of anything. I'd, I'd been very tired. It was an unusually demanding week. My energy was low. My emotions, of course, were low because my energy was low. But when we got to the line, these are the days of the harvest. Something inside of me, beyond me, rose up in in me, and I began to feel tears on my face. That's been about four years ago. That has not ceased. It doesn't matter how tired I am, how distracted I am, how empty I may feel. If in any circumstance the, the, the mention of the harvest comes up, I have this visceral response that rises in me, and certainly every time we sing Days of Elijah. When that line comes in, uh, it brings that kind of movement in my own heart. Now, that's subjective. I'm not trying to put my emotional responses over on you. I'm just saying that at least in my own private world, the Holy Spirit has underlined in red pencil, for lack of a better illustration, that clay, pay attention to this line. These are the days of the harvest. Well, what did Jesus say about the days of the harvest? He said in Matthew chapter 13, I'm going to read an extensive portion of Scripture here because we need to give uh, the context to the the thing. Um, you know, Matthew 13 is the parable of the sower. And uh, it would take all of the time we have together uh, in this hour to cover all of it. But after he gives the parable of the sower, he gives a couple of other illustrative pictures of, of uh, what he's trying to get across. Then in verse 24, it says another parable. He, he said to them, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, and while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. When the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said to him, Sir, we did not sow bad seed. We sowed good seed in the field. Where did these tares come from? And he answered and said to them, An enemy has done this. 
the servant said to him, will you then tear up the bad? And he said, no, let the good and the bad grow together. Let the wheat and the tares grow together until the time of the harvest. So the wheat and the tares grow together until the time of the harvest. Then later when he gets alone with his disciples and they begin to ask him questions, he says in verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom and the tares sown by an enemy are the children of the wicked. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. The harvest is the end of the age. The word world there is always misleading, and uh, I don't want to take time to go off on it in detail, but the Bible doesn't teach the end of the world if you interpret the word world as being you know, the earth exploding and some nova destroying the planet and all this kind of stuff. It's talking about the end of the age. And uh, Jesus says the harvest will take place at the end of the age. So what are some of the characteristics of the harvest? Well, the first characteristic that sticks out here is that the harvest takes place right before the end of the age. That's the most obvious and poignant aspect, I suppose. But then right along with that, that we need to pay attention to is that harvest time is a time of differentiating between what is wheat from what is tares. Wheat and the tares look just alike until the latter rain brings a manifestation of fruit in the wheat. Now, the early rain and the latter rain are first spoken of in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 14, where God says to Israel, I give you the rain on your land in its proper season. First, the first rain, which is the rain of the planting season. Then the latter rain, which is the rain that brings forth a mature crop so that you will gather in the wheat, the wine, and the oil. Well, this imagery is used then throughout the rest of Scripture. James chapter 5, verse 7 says, Be patient concerning the coming of the Lord. See, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Let that phrase soak in on you, the precious fruit of the earth. And uh, the, the husbandman who waits for the precious fruit of the earth has long patience while waiting for it until he receives the former and the latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draws near. I want to tell you that what establishes my heart uh, right now in the midst of all these terrible potential events that I just mentioned a few aspects of at the beginning of our time today. What what keeps me focused, what keeps me established uh, is this verse. Uh, Be patient, 
concerning the coming of the Lord. Remember that the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth, and he has long patience for it uh, until the, the, the work of the former and the latter rains has done its job. You also, Clay, be patient and establish your hearts. Psalm 112 says that the righteous man's heart is established. It is not afraid of bad news. So I'm establishing my heart or or making the the Hebrew word here implies putting, putting something down in cement, so to speak. Unmovable. And again, I've re- referred to it over and over and over because it needs to be referred to over and over. Hebrews 12, <clears throat> everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that that which cannot be shaken may remain steady. And we receive the kingdom which cannot be shaken. So if you're going to be established and unmoved so that you are patiently able to wait for the return of the Lord, and and what you need to be focused on is the harvest. Uh, Those of you who have never been great soul winners, and, and I never have considered myself a great soul winner, I've preached on the streets, I've handed out tracts, I've talked to people at random, I've spoken to people in in uh, restaurants, and I've done things like that. I've never been able to do it motivated by some preacher telling me that I've got to, quote, get the gospel out. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be critical of that. Uh, some people are really anointed and gifted to do that. I, I'm not gifted to, quote, witness to everything that moves. Uh, but I've learned over the years, uh, if I love people and have a heart for people, it's the most natural thing in the world to move supernaturally toward them with some mention of Jesus, some approach to them that gets to their heart. And then in that context, I'm able to, to just share Christ with them in some way. I've never been able to just cold turkey preach to people, I think, to be honest, I don't know how effective that is. I'm sure the Holy Spirit uses all kinds of different ways. But I'll tell you, I threw off my back years ago any feeling of guilt that I don't know how to witness or I'm not a good witness. Uh, I just tell people when the opportunity arises what God has done in my life and uh, you know, or speak to them in some way that the Holy Spirit can use. And God has brought fruit from it. But that sense of longing to communicate has greatly increased in the last four or five years. And uh, I don't want, I'm, I'm not trying to point this time together into the direction of motivating you to quote witness because um, uh, I really believe any sharing of the love of Jesus from us needs to be moving out of a heart of true care. Like the old saying goes, you know, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. And uh, if you make people feel like they're just fixing to be a notch on your gospel belt, uh, they're not going to be very open, and you may end up leaving them more jaded against the gospel than preparing the soil to receive whoever's going to come next. You know, one one man plants, another waters, and another brings uh, gets the harvest. So uh, we need to be careful that we're that we're preparing people's hearts and leaving their hearts in, in uh, a good soil. 
so the seed can go in and take root. But that, again, is a whole other subject. Be patient concerning the harvest, the time of the harvest. Be patient. Wait for the work of the former rain and the latter rain. Well, the work of the former rain was to prepare the world for the seed of the gospel. That took place in Acts chapter 2 when God poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the gospel was then taken from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And then there's this dry period between the sowing of the seed and the latter rain. The, the, the first outpouring is for the sowing of the seed to soften the ground. Then later on, the outpouring of called the latter rain, which took place uh, in the fall, right before the, the final harvest, uh, which the Feast of Tabernacles is related to this period. And, and I don't have time to talk about that, but Tabernacles, let me just say this, Tabernacles points toward eternal issues. The, 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 the hole in the top of the tabernacle when the, the celebrants of, uh, of the Feast of Tabernacles, they, they made a hole in the top of the tabernacle so they could look out at the stars and contemplate the eternal issues of life. And it was during the Feast of Tabernacles that uh, beginning with Yom Kippur, with the, uh, the Day of Atonement, that Jews took that time to contemplate their lives contemplate the eternal issues, the things that matter ultimately. And so with their families in this little uh, uh, booth, they spend the, the days together of tabernacles in a, in a temporary uh, housing, which speaks of the temporariness of earthly life, with a hole in the roof looking toward the eternal, having just come through the Day of Atonement where they contemplated uh, the coming judgment. And in this, and this is not dark and dreary and fearful. It is awesome and austere and uh, uh, has worshipful awe in it. But I'll tell you what, I think most of you probably know this without me saying it, the absence of awe the absence of that which causes us to want to get on our knees and, and cover our head and say, holy, holy, holy. The absence of that is partly what has made uh, modern Christian, Christian activity so insipidly boring and unreal and ineffective. ineffective. So that's all I'll say about that because I could easily go off on that uh, as a tangent. Well, it's a good tangent needed tangent, but I won't do that right now. All I will say is Tabernacles is related to the, the time of ingathering and the time of the harvest. And so Jesus underscores that in Matthew 13 when he says, look, I'm, I'm the one who sows the seed. The enemy that sowed the tares is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. Well, the the, the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 prepared the world to receive the seed of the gospel. But in, in the agricultural year of Israel, there was a period of dryness between the first outpouring and the latter outpouring. And the purpose of that time of dryness was to establish a strengthening 
of the seed uh, and a, a, a robustness and a, a strength of endurance. Now, there's lots of uh, directions we could go with that because, you see, uh, it's not just a black and white fact that there was Acts chapter 2 and then there was no more outpourings of the Holy Spirit until the final end of the age. That wouldn't be accurate. There have been many outpourings of the Holy Spirit throughout history. We've tended to call them revivals, but as one old preacher I used to know would say, uh, they, they weren't revivals. They were outpourings of the Holy Spirit just carrying on the work that was begun in Pentecost. And uh, this is the kingdom advancing in the earth. So I, I don't want you to get the idea that I'm suggesting there's first Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, which initiates the work of the church in getting the seed out to the rest of the world. Then the Holy Spirit's done absolutely nothing until the end of the age, and then there's the great outpouring at the end of the age. That's obviously not what I'm saying. But I do want you to understand that the picture that the Holy Spirit means to paint for us through these scriptures is that there is this initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, which I already re referred to three times. Then there's this ultimate outpouring that will take place at the close of the age that will mature the harvest and separate the wheat from the tares and show the fruit of the wheat against the poison of the tares. I believe that we are in that time period right now. Now, first of all, let me say, a lot of people listen to this message who don't live inside the United States. And nothing irritates foreign people more, and rightly so, than the way we Americans tend to measure all things, especially end-time events, by what's going on inside of America, as if everything rises and falls on what American Christians are thinking or doing or singing or talking about or writing books about or whatever. Uh, the vast majority of believing people who, who make up the rest of the population of the world are experiencing great outpourings of the Holy Spirit that America is sadly not experiencing. And one of the things that you'll learn if you study the outpouring uh, from the agricultural year of Israel is that the latter rain, which matures the crops, separates the wheat from the tares, and uh, uh, prepares for the ingathering, the final harvest, didn't take place in one gigantic monsoon. It wasn't like the monsoons of uh, the Far East where the rains just all of a sudden start and they rain and rain and rain and rain and then one day just as quickly as it starts, it stops. And uh, for the duration of that rain, everything in, a, in, in sight is getting soaked. That's not the way the latter rain operated in the agricultural year of Israel it would actually be that you could stand on a mountainside and observe over here there's an abundance of rain and then turn in the other uh, end of your panorama and there's no rain at all. And then the next day there might be rain in the area that was dry the day before and no rain in the place where it was raining precedingly. 
that's also the way it seems to have been with the various outpourings of the Holy Spirit in uh, in my lifetime. And if you study revival, the history of revival, you see that same thing is true. For instance, the Welch revival, just to mention one out of many dozens, but the Welch revival, uh, 1904, people came from all over the world to participate in and be under the outpouring of the revival uh, in Wales, which lasted a little over a year and affected the work of the gospel throughout the world as people came and received of that anointing and then went from there uh, into various their, their various homes. We've seen that true in, in various places. Now, the prophet Amos speaks of this phenomenon in uh, Amos chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Um, if you remember from our previous time uh, in Nightlight last, uh, last month, where we described the ministry of the prophet Amos to Israel, this was, this was the time of their apocalypse. This was not obviously the return of the Lord, but as a national event, they were facing their end of the age. They, it was the end of the age of Israel as it had been as a national entity. And this pattern of, uh, of what happened to Israel in the end of the age is a pattern that can be repeated and is repeated in the lives of other nations we may well be facing this same pattern in in America and not necessarily be facing the immediate end of the age. We could come to an end as a nation, something that most Americans just absolutely disregard as a possibility. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's just part and parcel of our fantasy and our arrogance that we truly do think that the whole world depends on us. A nation that hasn't even existed uh, for 300 years thinks it has the capacity to control and dominate the destinies and existence of uh, the rest of the world that has existed for uh, nearly 8,000 years. Anyway, Amos says here in chapter 4, verse 7, I, the Lord says, I will withhold the rain from you when there were three months to the harvest uh, I will send rain on one city and send no rain on another. One field will have rain, and the field on which it did not rain will will wither. So two or three cities would uh, wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Now, in its context, this is uh, speaking of chastising judgment in the hopes of repentance. But the context also can bear, to some degree, being a picture of what I'm talking about. Why do people run to this or that or the other place? Uh, pastors, I know I've been guilty of it as a pastor myself, say, what do they got to go running off over there for? So there's a, a revival broken out over there in, in uh, that town. Well, they can seek the Lord just as good here. Well, can they? I'm telling you, folks, there's some places where the Holy Spirit is moving, where the power and presence of God is being poured out 
and it's not happening here. I mean, <laughs> you know, the attitude is, well, if it's really of God, it would happen at our church first, obviously. So if it's not happening at our church, then it must not be from the Lord. That really is, sadly, the attitude some people take. But the fact is, God says here, I'll, now, I mean, some people say, well, this is an Old Covenant, this is an Old Testament story, as if the Jewish scriptures have nothing to teach us. And I, I, I hate to even waste my time giving a corrective to that mindset, because that mindset is so unbiblical. But so that's before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, and that's all the outpouring of the Holy Spirit there'll ever be. Well, that that dispensational, small-minded interpretation doesn't hold any water or spirit. Uh, there have been outpourings of the Holy Spirit down through the church age. We all know that. Everybody knows that. What happened in Great Britain didn't happen in the French Revolution under John Wesley and Charles Wesley and Whitfield. When the poor, when the Holy Spirit was poured out in the first and second great awakenings in the United States, it transformed the future of the, of our country and gave, uh, gave birth to the nation that has held, heralded freedom more than any nation in the existence of the planet. Uh, many, many, many other examples we could cite. If we started citing examples the whole time of uh, our message together today would just be on the history of outpourings of the Holy Spirit. These outpourings are for the purpose of softening the ground to receive the seed of the gospel. But none of them, as wonderful as they have been, none of them fulfills the great final outpouring that is mentioned in detail in the book of Joel. So go with me, if you're if you're uh, not driving, go with me to the book of Joel, and let's take a look here at Joel's uh, statements concerning the final outpouring, which precedes the harvest and brings about the close of the age. Joel... Chapter 1, and then Joel is a short book, just two, three little chapters, but it's crammed full of uh, information we need. In chapter 1, uh, this, is a, uh, this is written about uh, 800 B.C. Israel uh, is under another judgment. Now... Uh, <clears throat> Chapter 1 is a picture of desolation. Chapter 2 is a picture of restoration. And chapter 3 is a picture of judgment and uh, separation of the wheat from the tares. So it's all very, very closely related to what we're talking about. Joel chapter 1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, you old men. Give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Uh, has this been in your days or even in your forefathers' days? Tell your children about it. Tell your children to tell their children. That which the palmer worm has left, the locust has eaten. That which the locust has left, the canker worm has eaten. That which the canker worm has left, 
the caterpillar has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. Howl, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. Uh, and then he talks about how uh, a nation is to come up upon my land strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion and whose cheek teeth are of a great lion. And he has laid waste my vine and barked my fig tree. He has made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. Lament like a virgin, gird with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests of the Lord ministers mourn. The field is wasted. The land is in mourning. For the corn, the wheat, the wheat is wasted. The new wine is dried up and the oil is languishing. Be ashamed, you husbandmen. Howl, you vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley because the harvest of the field has perished. Then it says, uh, of course, the vine, the fig tree, uh, the, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree, the apple tree, all the trees of the field are withered because joy is withered away from the sons of men. It's a picture of complete desolation. It's a picture of many portions of history between Acts chapter 2 and uh, the end of the age. There have been whole portions of history where this is a description of the nations, uh, where the wickedness of nations, the rebellion of nations, the atheism of nations, the perversion of nations, has, uh, not seeking the face of the Lord not humbling themselves before God, but worshiping at the throne of their own nationalistic uh, pride has ended up being exactly like this. Then in Acts chapter, or excuse me, in Joel chapter 2, we get to that famous verse that Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and says, we're not drunk like you suppose being the third hour of the day, but this is that which the prophet Joel spoke about. Now notice, he didn't say this is the fulfillment of what Joel spoke about. He said this is that which Joel pointed to. And what did Joel say about it? Well, he Peter quotes the latter half of chapter 2. And we just assume because that's the portion he quoted that that's all he was referring to. But we're going to go back in just a minute and look at what preceded these verses. But many of you can quote this. You know it. Uh, beginning in verse 28. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your old men will dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids. In those days will I pour out of my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, and blood and fire and pillar of smoke. And uh, he doesn't quote all of that. So he's a, he, he quotes the part about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the manifestation of the prophetic, the word of the Lord coming through sons and daughters and prophesying to the nations, speaking the word of the Lord to the nations. But back up a little bit. And put it in a context that Peter and all of his listeners would have understood because they have a much better spiritual and biblical education than mo most of us have had. Let's put it in its context. 
and uh, I wish I had I wish we had time to just cover the whole chapter but uh, chapter 2 he, he says in verse 22 do not be afraid uh, or, or verse 23 be glad then you children of Zion and rejoice in the Lord your God for he has given you the former rain moderately and he will cause to come down for you the rain the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. He's saying that this great final outpouring will have all of the contingencies and blessings and powers and anointings of the former rain and the latter rain put together in the first month. And as a result, the floors shall be full of wheat, the vats will overflow and the wine and the oil, and I will restore to you all the things that the locusts have eaten. I'm going to undo all the work of the powers of darkness, the, the worms of hell that have eaten away at the heart and soul of your, your home, your life, your body, your spirit, your, your relationships, your marriages, your children. I will bring a, a, a restoration and you will no longer be ashamed. And that word ashamed can also be translated disappointed. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. This all is spoken of as coming immediately before the end of the age, the return of the Lord, and the establishment of the kingdom on earth. And then chapter 3 speaks of that event, uh, where the nations are brought into a, a valley of decision, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision, and all the earth will shake. But before that great final confrontation is this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now listen. This great outpouring of the Holy Spirit was also preceded in chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, know, says the Lord, turn even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments and turn to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and it repents his heart to have to bring judgment or destructive evil who knows if he will not return and repent or change his mind about his uh, judgment and leave a blessing instead of uh, chastisement who knows Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that are even nursing at the breast. Call the bridegroom and the bride out of their bridal chamber. That's how important this is. Let the priests and the ministers of God weep between the altar and cry out to God and don't, don't, spare, don't spare the people. In other words, don't hold back. This is, this is the time of put up or shut up. Everything is on the table. There's nothing held back. There's, there's no, no more room for compromise. No more room for nostalgia. You know, I've noticed a, a big upsurge in nostalgic issues. 
more and more. I mean, every time I turn around, there's some thing on television trying to sell me music from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, or, or you know, it, it's like any, let's go anywhere but where we really are. No, I want to go forward. don't want to go backward. I don't want to put my hand to the plow and look back. I want to go forward. And what the Holy Spirit is, is saying here is, this is the time of the harvest. The outpouring that is needed to bring the harvest to maturity is now what you need to be crying out for. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send laborers into the harvest. Because the, the harvest is, is ripe, but the, the laborers are few. And that, so that's something you can be praying about. I mean, that's, I hope you're aware that, that you need to be praying about that very thing. Because Amos actually goes on to say later on when Amos describes the mercy of God that will be poured out, speaking of the end of the age. In chapter 9, verse uh, 13 through 15, it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord. Speaking of these same days Joel is describing, our day, the close of the age. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman. In other words, the, 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 the plowman would have been at work in the, in the first rain. The reaper would have been at work after the latter rain. He said it's going to get to where the, the outpouring is so great that the, the plowman uh, will be overtaken by the reaper. You can't plant enough. The, the harvest is coming in so fast. The planter, uh, uh, he says the planter will be treading on grapes. New wine will be dripping from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile. And they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. And they will plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord. So this has to do with the, the restoration of Israel, the restoration of God's promises to Abraham which take place simultaneously as the outpouring of the Spirit is taking place on the whole earth. And the, the sowers who are sowing the word are being uh, outrun by the reapers who are gathering in the harvest. Uh, I, I saw a, a, a picture of that uh, this week at our conference. Uh, you know, I said a while ago, there's that tendency that we have of saying, pastors anyway have had a tendency of saying, and I'm guilty too, what are they running off over there for? You know, they can seek God in their living room. They can get healed at home. Uh, well, that that kind of foolish mindset is contradicted by the fact that something happens at our conferences that just doesn't happen anywhere else we go. It's not because it's my conference or, or mine and Mary's ministry. That's not it, obviously. I think it's because you have like-minded people who all have a similar focus. They have made a pilgrimage like Psalm 84 talks about. They have set themselves to go on a pilgrimage and and and. They've set aside time and money and energy, and they have used that time, money, and energy for one purpose, and that is to seek the face of the Lord and, and go, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of our God, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the word of the Lord. 
And uh, I know God doesn't dwell in a building made with hands, for heaven's sakes. I know that. I know that we are the temple, but that's my point. It's not because they come and go up to the mountain of the Lord to a building. It's that they come and go up to the mountain of the Lord and become the building. They become living stones who have set themselves in a position. And then what what happens is Psalm 22 happens. God comes and enthrones himself on the praises of the people. I mean, the God, God came down and enthroned himself in our worship. And, and God just began to do things. And one of the things that I saw him doing that he does every time we gather, but this time seemed more dramatic. I seemed to watch people grow up right in front of my eyes. I, I mean, people seemed to, to grasp truth that took me a decade to understand. I don't mean they comprehended it just intellectually. I mean, they seemed to digest it. And it seemed to take up residence in their body, soul, and spirit and manifest through their character and out of their mouth. I saw people growing before my eyes like weeds. And I thought of this verse. The reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. And uh, there'll be wine dripping from the mountains. I mean, it was it was like that in, in, in the spirit. Now, I just want to give you a quick overview of something I've, I've talked about before, but uh, I think it'll help you. Uh, Joel says the, the, the fig tree and all the trees begin to be uh, nurtured and blossom in this outpouring. When Israel became a nation in 1947, that was the same year that the ministry of uh, Bill Bright, Billy Graham, Oral Roberts, Catherine Kuhlman, uh, Campus Crusade, all these ministries, many, many other ministries I could name, uh, uh, Jack Coe, A.A. Uh, a. Allen, all these ministries burst in 1947. In 1967, Israel has to go to to battle to save themselves from a, a wicked uh, invasion by her enemies. And at the end of that encounter, Israel had retaken the city of Jerusalem and the, the middle wall of partition that divided the city was taken down and there was a unified Jerusalem fulfilling the prophecy that the Lord Jesus speaks of in Luke 21 when he says, uh, Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So according to Jesus' statement, in 1967, the times of the Gentiles began to come to an end. Now, biblical times don't just change overnight. But it was 1967 that the times of the Gentile domination over Israel is brought to an end. At that same year, the, the, the Holy Spirit fell on uh, Haight-Ashbury and started the Jesus movement. And the Holy Spirit fell on the uh, 
gathering at Notre Dame of Catholic uh, brothers and sisters who were seeking the Lord and the Holy Spirit poured out on them. And they came to know the fullness of God and began the, the charismatic renewal in the rest of the church, uh, which finally uh, knocked down the middle wall of partition between many denominations. Uh, whatever theological difficulties you may have with that, you need to take up with God because he didn't seem to be bothered by it like a lot of people are. Anyway, um, the power of the Spirit, and I, by the way, folks, I don't mean by that, I don't mean to be facetious. I'm not meaning by that that we don't need to take care about doctrine. It, it does matter uh, what you believe and how you believe it, certainly. And there's a lot of goofy, crazy, silly foolishness in the charismatic renewal now. In fact, I don't think there is a charismatic movement because I don't think it's moving. Uh, I think it's left a lot of uh, uh, debris. All moves of the Holy Spirit, by the way, leave debris behind because the Holy Spirit is a consuming fire and he purges whatever he's dealing with and leaves the refuse of that purging uh, behind. So certainly there is a lot of refuse. Uh, that's a whole other subject we can't cover right now. Maybe, maybe I can talk about that more later. Why is it that everywhere I go, doesn't matter whether it's uh, Indiana or Texas or New York or Florida or California or you or England, it doesn't matter where I am. Everybody has a similar story. Great move of the Holy Spirit in the 60s and 70s. Wonderful miracles, wonderful relationships. Then what happened? Oh, the church split. Oh, the preacher ran off with the secretary. Oh, some terrible thing happened. Every story is the same. And then uh, there was a time of healing, cleansing, restoration, and now a new move of the Spirit. It's like that period between Acts chapter 2 and the final outpouring described by Joel. The initial outpouring makes the heart ready for the seed. Then there's a time of growth. Then there's a time of purging. Then there's a time of uh, of. And the purging can be devastating. I mean, it can cut cut you right down to the to the root. And then there's a new sprig and a new uh, a new outpouring that brings the final mature harvest. This has happened in our private lives. It's happened in our church community lives, and it is happening and will happen in the international, uh, worldwide life of the church. As uh, the, the as this maturing process, see, causes our childishness to be exposed, our, our self-pity, our self-will, our self-aggrandizement, our desire to be the center of attention instead of Jesus. All that gets purged out in that dry, empty area, that desert time, that uh, uh, darkness of the soul period that some people go through, many people go through. I guess we've all gone through it if we're moving forward. And then finally, the, uh, the, the final outpouring, which will bring about the, the maturity of believing people who will walk as Christ in the earth. They, we, will, we will be Christ's hand extended, his love expressed, his character manifested in the earth and uh, to bring about the close 
of this age and the birth of the age to come. So you get to 1973, Israel is confronted again with uh, attacks by her enemies, and it was at that same period uh, that uh, the, the church, uh, as we have already referred to, began to move in healing gifts and miracles and signs and wonders, and most of all, evangelism began to penetrate in parts of the earth that had never penetrated before. So as as Israel is restored, the church is being restored, and as this continues to happen, uh, as Israel is being persecuted, the church is being persecuted, as anti-Semitism is increasing in the earth, a hatred for Christians is increasing in the earth. And so the path of the just will shine brighter and brighter till it reaches perfect noonday. Uh, the darkness gets darker. The, the, the stars shine brightest in the darkest of the night. All these images we've referred to in previous messages, but I just want to bring them together in this one message about the harvest so that maybe they can constellate in your thinking in a, a new and fresher way. Now, finally, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 5 says that a son who is asleep in harvest is a shame to his father and mother. Uh, you know, Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, I think it's Luke 17. Let me look it up. I don't trust my memory here. I want you to have this. I quote this all the time. But I guess I quote it all the time because I'm so aware of the danger of it, both in my own life and in the lives of all uh, around me. But, uh, no, it's Luke 21. You think, if, you think if I quote it all the time, I'd know where it is, wouldn't you? Luke 21, this is the same chapter I've already referred to where Jesus speaks of uh Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles till the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And, uh, uh, see, I don't know where to begin in it because every word of it is pertinent and important. But let's begin at verse 25. Uh, I just quoted Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles till the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And then shall you see the sign of the sun in the moon and the stars, the signs of the sun, the moon, the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity. Distress of nations with perplexity. The word perplexity means a, a puzzle you cannot find the answer to. The, the picture is like a rod and reel. Just imagine a rod and reel. You've got a backlash in your reel. It's so... It's so tangled, there's no way you would ever be able to untangle it. If you do one thing, it messes up another thing. If you mess up that thing, you can't fix it because it creates another domino effect. The stress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. Men's hearts failing them for fear from looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming 
in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up, lift up your heads, for your redemption draws near. Then he spoke the parable of the fig tree and said, Look at the fig tree and all of the trees. When they shoot forth, you see and know that your own uh, of your own selves that summer is near at hand. So likewise, when you see all these things come to pass, know that the kingdom of God is very near. Some people try to make a controversy over the fact that the fig tree is often a symbol of Israel. He says, Behold the fig tree and all of the trees. I don't really see why that's a controversial thing, unless you have a a hobby horse to ride. But the point is, the, the blossoming of the fig tree was also the blossoming of all the nations. When Israel came back to her land in 47, uh, there have been many, many other nations come into existence since then. But we'll go on. Verse 33, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Then he says in verse 34, Take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting, partying, and drunkenness, and the cares of this life, so that that day comes upon you unawares. Remember, we just quoted Proverbs 10, 5. He who is asleep in the harvest is a shame to his father. And you know, you, you might think, well, why would Jesus have to warn his own people not to be getting drunk? Well, I'll tell you why. Because I meet some that do. I meet them more often than I want to tell you. And the way they excuse themselves for it is right along with the way Christians in our culture excuse every other debauchery and, and vice that we have begun to excuse. Every other kind of self-centered, uh, self, uh, self-centered idolatry, uh, immorality, fornication, watching movies and things of that nature that are just absolutely vile, things of that, you know. I'm just amazed at what people, and they don't even, I mean, I don't want anybody to ever edit their speech because Clay's a preacher. I, mean, I hate that. Hate that. Don't talk ugly around the preacher. That's stupid in itself. It's like God doesn't hear you. If God knows, who cares what the preacher knows? But the point is, folks, they don't even have any shame about it. I mean, they, they laugh about getting tipsy, going out to eat and drinking too much and not being able to drive home. Christians. You know, anyway. So Jesus says, you beware that your hearts don't become overcharged. That word, this whole idea of being overcharged with partying, it means overly stimulated in the wrong direction falsely comforted that's what it means with drunkenness with the or, or overburdened with the cares of everyday life jesus is not cutting us any slack about being focused on what's important by our appeal to how busy we are and how burdened we are and how many 
very real, important things we have to do every day. And we just don't have time to focus on the harvest. We don't have time to focus on the kingdom. We don't have to focus because we're so busy, God. We've got all this stuff that we've got to do every day. Jesus doesn't give us any any slack about it. Which is, by the way, for our good. Because who? I don't think you really want to be all that wrapped up in the daily cares of everyday life when the day, whatever the day is, comes upon us and it catches us unawares because we had our head stuck in our computer screen or some other place instead of watching and being prepared and waiting expectantly for his return. Watch, he says in verse 36. Watch and pray always. So that you, the King James here is not very clear. It says, so that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. More accurate translation, the, the New King James has it better. Stay awake at all times. Pray that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Or one translation says to land on your feet. (laughs) That's kind of a funny picture. Land on your feet. Okay, time's up. God bless you. Thanks for listening.